Welcome once again to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast. On this podcast, we talk to authors whose work appears in the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy about their work and how their work applies to us as teachers and scholars and other people who care about literacy. I'm your host, Matt Sroka. I'm Associate Editor of the Journal of Adolescent Adult Literacy, and I'm recording from my home institution of Mercer University. We launched this podcast last April, and now we are here in 2024. It's our first episode of the year. We're still going. Take that, all you haters. I'm just kidding. <laughs> there are no haters of this podcast, at least that I'm aware of. Everyone around this podcast has been so positive and so supportive, and I appreciate that. Uh, and so we're going to keep on doing this. Uh, and we're getting the show off to a great start in 2024 by talking to my friend, Dr. Thomas DeVere Wolsey. So I've done a couple episodes talking about either directly or indirectly um, aspects of disciplinary literacy. Well, today we're going to unpack and have a whole episode just to talk about disciplinary literacy, what it is, how it applies to our teaching and learning. And I even uh, have the pleasure this episode of putting Dr. Wolsey in perhaps a, a somewhat unfortunate position of responding to my issues, to my criticisms of of disciplinary literacy. Our conversation stems from an article um, that Dr. Wolsey wrote with his colleagues called Intersections of Literacy and Teaching with the Disciplines and Professions. We asked some experts. And that um, article can be found in the show notes. Um, As always, it's available there for free to read. Dr. Thomas DeVere Wolsey, teaches graduate courses in research and literacy. He leads professional development for teachers in Egypt, Guatemala, Mexico, China, on the Hopi Reservation and throughout the United States, among other places. He is the author or co-author of 12 books for teachers and teacher educators with two or more in devel- or with two more in development. Dr. Wolsey has developed training materials for the California Department of Education, Text Project, San Diego State University, and North County, San Diego, beginning teacher support and assessment program. His specialities include exploring intersections of literacy and technology, middle grades and secondary literacy practices, teacher preparation, and green school design. And with that, here is my conversation with Dr. Thomas DeVere Wolsey. I'm excited now to be joined on the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast by Dr. Thomas DeVere Wolsey. Uh, Devere, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this topic, disciplinary literacy? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, years ago, when I was still teaching in public schools, uh, I was uh, teaching middle school, and um, I then took a part-time adjunct job at a university in San Diego, uh, teaching content area I don't remember the title of it now. It's something about content area literacies or reading in the content areas. I think it might have been called then. And always there were some some teachers who thought it was a waste of time, but it was required. They had to take the course. And um, certain disciplines that in their mindset, the um, reading just didn't click with them. In math, you don't immediately think of reading text because you don't read stories, you don't read a lot of nonfiction of of any length and that sort of thing, for example, in mathematics, uh, in physical education, PE classes, the PE teachers could not see how a class in reading uh, literacy uh, had anything to do with what they were going to do 
Mm-hmm. And the music teachers, same idea. They knew about reading music, but they didn't really see how reading fit in with their, um, with what, what they were planning to do with their curriculum, with what they knew of their, their curriculum. So I took it as a personal challenge um, to say, all right, listen, these things actually matter to you. And I'm going to show you why it's important for you to know these these types of strategies. But they were the general sorts of content area strategies that we've been using for years. The uh, SQ3R, you know, survey question, read the site review that was um, came out of World War II, actually, to help officer candidates learn to process content text more effectively, for example. Um, but then I had to make a lot of tweaks. I had to make a lot of adjustments so that they could see that this strategy or this approach can help your students read mathematics better, the symbols of mathematics, which are really very much like reading. They have some differences though, like reading uh, uh, a, a, a word problem. Usually in those, the words are very densely packed, very abstract. So you have to read very carefully. And math teachers don't didn't at that time really know how to address that problem other than just tell the kids, read it again, for example. So what we had to do was show them how, to show the math teachers how you use the uh, various techniques, the strategies, the instructional routines to make, make it easier for their students to comprehend so that they weren't struggling with the abstract text. Particularly, they needed to know that it was a different kind of text than what they might read in an English class, a literature, language arts class, for example. So that was what kind of set me off in that direction. And I've been pursuing that ever since. I always wanted to uh, teach a class in literacy for specific disciplines with only math teachers in it or only physical education teachers in it to show them how they can use these strategies to do their own jobs better. The things that they really want to do with PE, with music and what have you. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember my first time teaching a disciplinary literacy course was I was an adjunct at Salisbury U- University, and I think they had a class of about 20, and 16 of them were phys ed majors, and who were a little bit skeptical, right, towards the idea of, like, this is something we see that literacy is important in every subject area, but you sit in a room with future PE teachers, maybe a bit skeptical, and maybe myself too much, first time te- teaching the course, I'd say, okay, <laughs> how does it apply? Um, and then and, and what is reading and writing um, and creating and all the other literacy things we'll, we'll get into. How does that, what does that look like in, 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 in with PE teachers in, in this setting was an interesting, challenging, interesting, challenging for them and for me. But before I get too far into it, let's, let's back up a second and let's do some definitions here. So how would you say, how would you go about defining disciplinary literacy? And maybe how was it different to just kind of teaching reading and writing strategies? But, you know, back at the turn of the last century, in the early 1900s, educationalists started to realize that we have to help teachers of content areas, subject matter, um, science, math, history, and so on, help their students to read better, because a lot of those courses were were text-based. But what what really evolved from that were a lot of generalized strategies that we now just call content area literacy strategies, like SQ3R I mentioned. That's just one of many instructional routines or uh, study strategies. Um, And they just applied kind of generally. And then we realized, uh, Tim Shanahan really got into this and his wife, Cynthia, uh, really got into this. And they did a lot of studies with experts because they realized the same thing that I had done, but they took action and did the studies 
that uh, kind of are foundational in this in this area of disciplinary literacies um, to say, okay, well, how do scientists read? What do mathematicians actually write? How do they write? And how is it different? And that's the thing that you're asking here about the, the definitions, right? What is disciplinary mm-hmm. literacy? Whereas we thought of we, we thought of teaching reading as a generalized construct, we realized at some point in the early, uh, um, uh, well, the, the late 2000s, uh, 2008, right around there, we really, really took off with the publication of some books uh, by Ronnie Joe Date Draper, Tim Shanahan, uh, who else? Elizabeth Moji um, mm-hmm. wrote, some, wrote some material on this. And we started to think, well, all right, look, if we want kids to be really proficient in science and math, then we have to teach them how math uh, mathematicians think. How do they write? What do they write? How do they read? Uh, and we need to find out what makes them different. And that's what disciplinary literacy is. It's the particularities of those disciplines rather than the, the more generalized structures. We realize that um, there are going to be some overlaps. You can't just say, well, I'm doing disciplinary literacy now and uh, push all the content uh, literacy aside. There's a lot of overlap there. Uh, one of the things that we found, uh, Tim Shanahan did this right away in his studies with his, uh, um, and based on, on what he learned about how uh, mathematicians, chemists, um, historians actually do their reading. And he found out that they do things differently when they're reading professional papers. So how do we tweak the things that we already know? He used the word jigger to um, to say, let's change a particular strategy that we already know, that teachers already employ in their classrooms. And let's rejigger that a little bit so that it actually highlights how the learning is done, how the knowledge is constructed, rather than just the content itself. So that students start to think, oh, now I see how the evidence was used. Now I see how a scientist reached this conclusion. Right. And that makes, intuitively, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because in my reading life, if I'm reading a novel and I'm looking at character development and thinking about theme, even, even, when teach, even if I know I'm going to teach that, I'm thinking about things around, you know, symbols. But if I'm reading an academic article, um, I'm not looking for character development in the academic article. I'm looking for, you know, what what methodology did 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 they use? How do the findings apply to me professionally? Like I'm just I'm going into it with a completely different mindset, and I'm reading it, looking for for different things. And so the idea that I would teach pe- teach someone to read an academic article the way I would teach them to read a novel, well, of course I wouldn't, because in my own reading, I don't do this, I don't do, I don't do the same things when I'm reading those different articles. I'm doing two different things, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly what we're trying to get at here um, with the idea of disciplinary literacies. And I've been using literacies now because I'm starting to think, and this is just my, where I am personally with this in my, in my thinking, that the literacies that a mathematician might employ are going to be somewhat different than the ones a scientist might employ, than a historian might employ, uh, and so on. Or a teacher of creative, a, a person who is a creative writer, for example, an author of, of fiction might do something completely different in reading and writing. So I've been thinking about disciplinary literacies in order to highlight that these things are actually somewhat different. And it's our job as teacher educators and it's our job as teachers to find out what is it that that will help students to read those texts, to understand those texts that they might find in in a uh, that a scientist might read or want to read. Yeah, and 
Um, and I think the the first time, I, I, I don't know how well this is known amongst secondary educators. I, 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 I don't know. Because for me, the first time I really thought about this by literacy, I'm not sure if it's the first time I heard of it, but the first time I really thought about it and how it applied in my classroom was pursuing my doctorate. And as part of that, I, I adjuncted a, a class at Salisbury, like I mentioned, and that's where mm-hmm. I kind of seek myself in the literature to prepare myself for teaching that course. Prior to that, I never really thought about um, teaching reading differently depending on the, the discipline. Um, now, maybe it impacted me a little bit less as an English teacher, that um, as opposed to some of the other content areas, um, because I think sometimes we originate some of the strategies in English and then try to stick them on other disciplines. Yeah, um, we did that for a long time. It was all it's just developmental. It's not a critique of what we did in the past, but it's it's just a matter of we had these experts that we call uh, language arts literature teachers who deal with language all the time. We just apply those strategies, and then we kind of started to realize the early 2000s, maybe we can do a little bit better. And that's how the, you know, that's how research works. That's how teaching works and evolves too. Yeah. And I think this is a good thing for teachers, right? Because there is something intimidating about this idea that every teacher is a teacher of reading. Well, if I'm a, if I'm a a science teacher, I don't like, listen, it's not my job to teach kids how to read, right? I, I need them to read this article though, but I don't view myself as a reading teacher per se, even as an English teacher, someone who taught literature, I didn't really perceive myself as a, a teacher of reading, right? So I think it helps for educators also to kind of take that mental shift to say, okay, I'm not, what I'm responsible for is how would I read this article, teaching my students to be able to kind of yeah. a, a, a read like a scientist, um, which I think is less intimidating. So so as I transition, so, so that's what discipline literacy is. Um, if we can tra- transition talking about kind of what does that look like in the classroom, right? So if I'm a, a secondary teacher of math or I'm a secondary teacher of, of, of science or history or even English, what's different? Like, wh- how, how, how can I employ some disciplinary literacy strategies in my classroom? What, 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 what does that look like exactly? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, my friend and colleague Diane Lapp uh, and I have done with a lot of other colleagues, by the way, with the, uh, we did a little project a little while ago, and we're, it's still ongoing in some ways, uh, where we ask some experts in various fields to talk with literacy experts, professors like ourselves, and we wanted to get a conversation going. We wanted to find out some of these sorts of things. What we found out is uh, that there are some common themes uh, that we can look at. For example, uh, we can look at the um, precision vocabulary. We talked a little bit about this um, in terms of tier, tier two vocabulary. It's the, the vocabulary that is academic in nature, but it's used across disciplines. Then there's the vocabulary precision that uh, is required when you're in working in, within a discipline. It's the sort of word that you would only find in when you're when you're working within a particular discipline. Uh, for example, in a social studies class that's dealing with the discipline of history we might use the word federal, which is not a word you would use probably anywhere else. Bicameral, you wouldn't use that very likely in any other discipline. You wouldn't find it in a science class. You wouldn't find it in a mathematics class. It's very precisely used. And there are other words that are used very precisely in certain disciplines. For example, the word theory is used in a colloquial way. Just mean, it's this guess that I have. 
It's something I think might be the way the world works. It's a guess. But a theory in science is something very specific, and it's supported by a lot of evidence. So we want to look at precision use of vocabulary in what ways, what words are going to be need to be highlighted in uh, various disciplines and the subject matters that where those disciplines are taught. Um, we want to look at other things, too. We want to look at things like the textual practices. Um, for example, we know that scientists in general, when they're reading science texts, do not start at the beginning and go uh, down the columns, next page, down the column, mm. until they get to the end. Instead, they look at the graphs and the tables and the illustrations and the figures, and they read back and forth between the text, the actual words that describe that information, and then they, they look at the, uh, the information that's there in the figures, the tables, the charts, and they're looking to verify what does this data actually say and what is the text telling me about that? Um, for example, historians, when working within the uh, discipline of, of history, historians tend to look for um, who is saying what, who derived this conclusion. And that kind of takes me to the, the third thing that I think teachers can really look at in some depth. And when they're when they're thinking about their 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 practice, when they're thinking about the pedagogies, they want to look at uh, in, in some depth at the evidence that's used. The evidence that a scientist use it uses is very different than the evidence that uh, a historian will use. In science, we're looking at data. We're looking at data that's derived from from uh, empirical evidence, from from case studies, from randomly con random controlled trials, from RCTs. And this sort of information very likely, very often, depends on which science we're talking about, though, um, and to what extent that is. Uh, whereas a historian is looking to see, well, which letters were, were uh, the basis for this conclusion from the past, because we, we weren't there. All we have are these records, this ephemera that says, this is what we think probably happened. And we're always looking for more evidence in the form of diaries and so on. I was speaking with a historian uh, last year. Uh, his name is David Klein from San Diego State University about this very thing. He's very big into oral histories, and we can do that much better now because of the technologies that we have. The last to to gather oral histories from people that were at a particular event, experienced something, and we can gather a lot of those sorts of things in order to get a better understanding of historical events. Um, so these are the sorts of things that we, we want to look at and that teachers can look at. What's the evidence? What's the, how, do, how do we navigate the distinct evidentiary uh, landscapes that, that uh, uh, are all over the place in the, various, in the various disciplines, but the evidence varies. Different disciplines use different evidences, just as different uh, uh, experts from various disciplines read their, their texts in a little bit different ways for different purposes. And that one of the other things is to look at the questioning strategies that we use in the classrooms, in our classrooms. This has always been a big, uh, a big thing. And I used to tell the students in my pre-service uh, teaching courses that, listen, you've got to plan your questions. You might not use them all, but you've got to plan them because if you don't, what ends up happening, and it's been documented time and again, is that you use surface level questions. The sorts of things like, what was the main character's dress color? Well, who mm -hmm. cares? What we want to know is why, if we're talking about literature, why the character did what they did. But those are very hard to just come up with rapidly on the spot. You have to think about what my questions might be. And in 
we're thinking about disciplinary literacy, we're looking for questions that talk about, sorry, I'm not uh, speaking very well, uh, that talk about more than just what the content is, uh, you know, what's what's the process of cell division? Well, okay, I can name that if I've read the text, I listen to the uh, pr professor, the teacher, and, and watch an experiment and so on. But do I know why that's important? And do I know how it is that scientists even came to understand what cell division is actually all about? Um, how is it that we can, we can uh, understand and know how diseases spread quickly and rapidly? And, how, and what to generally do about those, for example, using a, a more recent example. Yeah. How, do science, how, how, how do scientists know how diseases actually spread? Yeah. It's very hard to see unless you've got a, a particular method that you're going to use to determine that. And students need to be thinking about that. And the questions that we ask can help them see how that knowledge is constructed, why it was derived in the way that it was derived, rather than just what the content actually said. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, a lot of stuff there to unpack. Um, you, you started off by mentioning uh, how you can ask the experts. And obviously, if we're talking about people who, if we want our students to kind of think like people in these professions, well, who better than to talk to the people in the professions? Um, and this, this reminds me that this whole conversation with you um, stems from an article that you wrote for JAL a, couple, a few years ago called Intersections of Literacy and Teaching Disciplines. At professions, we asked mm -hmm. some experts, you and some colleagues wrote an article where you did this very thing. You asked experts about kind of what the disciplinary literacy look like in these different classrooms. Um, and there's a link to that article in the show notes that listeners can can can, can check out. Um, cool. But but um, but you you also mentioned um, this idea of of I feel like teaching it becomes the teachers then have to ask themselves, okay, what questions are they asking when they read an article because I mean, teachers are experts in these content areas. I, I'm a big fan of anchor charts. And I remember in English class writing specific anchor charts that were associated with reading a novel. And we would do like um, literature circles. And so they would all be reading kind of different books. But then we would come back to our anchor chart to kind of have these commonality questions that we ask when, when we read a novel, um, these signposts that, that we look for. And then that Ky Kylie Beers talked about signposts. And so we, those kind of applied across the board to most of the literature. Um, but then this past semester, I got away from anchor charts a little bit. I said, well, I should do an anchor chart because it's a good strategy. And we kind of did it together with my students in our disciplinary literacy course and applied to academic literature. And the signpost questions we asked for academic literature just looked so different than the questions we asked in that English class reading our different novels. And so I think it makes sense, right, that you're encouraging your students to ask different questions as kind of they, they go class to class. Um, and it also reminds me of kind of, there's been a lot of you know research around inquiry-based instruction and the value of inquiry-based learning. And, and so this is very much in, I mean, what do people in these professions do? They ask these hard questions and they're curious and they try to find, an, find out answers to, to the large questions. And that's what we're asking our students to do, right? Ask these questions and then go find answers. Yeah, it's, it's very much inquiry based. It's a matter of and, and it gets us to engagement, too, with students when they start to see how it is that a scientist arrives at a particular conclusion or how a historian pieces together ephemera from the past, letters, diaries, uh, recordings, whatever it happens to be, sometimes other artifacts, and starts to piece together uh, a history 
then then they get engaged because now it's it's a puzzle, it's a mystery, and everybody likes a mystery. It's like that game of Clue, if you remember that game. I think it's now yep. available online. Like, yes, yes, it? no. Was Mr. Plum in the library, or was it in the conservatory? <laughs> I think Clue still works as a relevant reference. I don't know. Uh, if I said in high school how many people would get the Clue reference, I think most people would. I think that still works. Uh, I, if I can, okay. So now we've established what display literacy is, kind of why it's important, how teachers can use it in the classroom. Now, let me kind of push back a little bit, if I may. Uh, I talked to, uh, we had on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, um, scholars, Dr. Leslie and Dr. Stewart and Dr. Kenny, um, actually Dr. Stewart wasn't there, but uh, Leslie and Kenny and Stewart wrote the article, Exploring Connections Between Disciplinary Literacy and Digital Literacy in, in History. And something that emerged, they brought in a historian into a high school classroom um, and for the, histor the historian to go over kind of his process um, you know, that, that he does. And, and the result, and the result was that students were really bored, <laughs> not engaged, and they did not respond well to it. That you talked about engagement, they did not engage well. And it, it, I mean, the reality of it is a lot of stuff people do, a lot of stuff historians do is not edge of your seat stuff, right? Like combing mm -hmm. through research, looking for credible evidence, finding out going through the steps to find out is the evidence credible, all of that is not on your edge engaging stuff, right? And so how do we get kids to act like historians without getting kind of lost in the nitty gritty work that can make it less engaging while still going kind of going through that process? Uh, I guess my question is, the pushback might be, well, this is not engaging. <laughs> the actual work of historians is boring. So... How can we respond to that? Well, you know, I think this is an area where we probably really should be doing a lot more research. Um, yeah. We have some pretty good ideas about how experts in various disciplines read, but the reality is that students in high school, middle school, um, are not experts. And that's by, by definition. They're not experts because they're still in school. They're, they're, they're working toward right. some knowledge. Um, so how, how do we take something that an expert knows how to do and maybe does it almost without thinking and and make that applicable to the lives of, of students, of our high school students, our middle school students? How do we get them to apply these sorts of things, uh, to, to think like a historian, to think like a scientist, but not actually be the experts? And yeah. uh, the other thing is that, you know, the, the, the idea of the Renaissance man that is a master of everything, uh, like uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci and so on. Well, there are only one or two of those Renaissance men and uh, right. not a lot of others. I'm not, certainly not one. So we're not all going to become experts in every single discipline anyway. Well, and, and just to before we go further with that, what this and I'm talking about an article called Exploring the Connection between Disciplinary and Digital Literacies and History. Um, by Dr. Leslie, Dr. Stewart, and Dr. Keene. And what they found out, too, in their study was that the teachers got caught up, and this was kind of applying different literacies into a high school, an urban high school classroom. They found a lot of the um, time they wanted to be talking about strategies historians use, a lot of that time was instead spent with these menial tasks, like, how, uh, like teaching kids how to copy and paste from one Google Doc to the next Google Doc or how to create yeah. a new Google Doc. And so what your, your point about these are high schoolers still learning. 
um, well, then they got caught up in all the kind of the pedantic, sim- uh, I don't want to say simplistic, but all the all the stuff that you've got to get past first before you can get to the higher level story and stuff. Um, another challenge, I think. Yeah, I noticed um, several years ago, I was still teaching eighth grade and they, <coughs> excuse me, they uh, um, insisted that I teach a, a gifted class. I would prefer not to, I would prefer to work with the not gifted, but they wanted me to do that. So I tried to keep the uh, the two classes moving in, uh, uh, well, you know, if the content is good for the gifted students, it probably is good for the others, for the other students who are not labeled as such. Um, but I also found out that um, we have this myth of the digital native, and it's it's a myth in the sense that it's just not true. Certainly, it is true that the kids now that are in high school and middle school have had technology, computers, tablets, uh, smartphones all of their lives. But it doesn't mean they know how to use them for academic purposes. And so we have to think about what that is. There's a whole whole other podcast, I think, for you here. With- yeah, I, I think also this goes back to something I've, we talk a lot about in here is kind of funds of knowledge, right? And what students right. bring to the classroom. I don't think we've talked enough about how now with digital literacies and what students have at home and bring to the classroom, I think there's a large spectrum of what kids are doing at home with technology between what other kids are doing at home with, with te- technology, right. and it shows up in the classroom. Yeah, and it depends on the technology that's available to you and so yep. on. So we have to think about those sorts of things when we're thinking about disciplinary literacy. What's, what has to be foundational if students are going to be able to do these sorts of things? And if we have to stop and teach them how to copy and paste from one Google Doc to another one, then we probably better do that because that's going to help them be successful in other ways. Um, Other times, these sorts of things become sort of transparent, too, in in the teaching and learning that we're doing. Um, We we work with this sort of thing in the the English language literature. I'm sorry, the English language learners when we need to teach them science, but they don't know all of they don't know English well enough understand the more technical science terms, let alone conversational English, especially when they're new. So we try to teach them using the content as the conduit to more proficient English language learning, particularly in the secondary settings, for example. And we can do that same thing here with disciplinary learning too. With disciplinary literacies, we can we can help students start to think a little bit like how is this knowledge constructed? Why is it constructed this way? At the same time, we're helping them learn to copy paste. We're, we're going to be helping a lot of kids to learn how to read. Even in high school and middle school, they don't all come to us being proficient readers. And then we present them with texts that are sometimes very heavy duty. So they don't know how to read them. And if we push them on their own, they won't read them. Right. Because it's hard. It's hard work. It's hard cognitive work. So we've got to find good balances. And I think that's an area where we could probably do a better job of research uh, moving forward. Also, what exactly do students need to know about how a scientist think? Yeah. How a math- mathematician thinks and so on. Well, and the other aspect of it is, and I was thinking about this in my as you're talking, thinking about in my own in my own life, like doing the academic research I do. And if I brought students into that world, would they be engaged? And some would and some wouldn't. And mm-hmm. part and part part of the reason is. Is because if I'm doing research, I'm choosing something I'm interested in, right? Like I am motivated because right. I have this inherent interest because I 
chose the topic, right? It's it's kind of a, an idea I want to explore for whatever reason. And then sometimes in school, um, they're not they're they're being told here's what you're here's what you're doing, because the reality of it is the copy and paste thing. I, I don't even know what we're talking about here, really, because um, yes, there's a variety of kind of skills and um, levels of comfortability with with digital tools that students bring. But I also know that if a student is motivated, they can figure out how to use technology. They can figure out, wait, uh, there's the reality of it is a lot of our students can do a lot of things we can't do with mm-hmm. digital tools. And it's not because they had a class called TikTok 101 when they were in sixth grade, right? Like they just, they're motivated to do it. And so they spend time with it and they figure it out. The reason um, in, in in that study I referenced that they they didn't know how to copy and paste is because there was no desire and motivation right, to to learn or to remember how to copy and paste. Because if there was, they would have figured it out if it was important to them, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of resources within the classroom for students who want to learn a particular thing, and that engages them to do uh, to use other tools. I can um, imagine. Uh, an assignment that I'm kind of making this up on the spot, but uh, an assignment in uh, the history class to create a TikTok about a TikTok video about how a, how a historian is going to approach any event in the world today. And with TikTok, you're limited usually to something that's pretty short. I don't know that it has an actual limitation, but usually most of them are pretty short, yeah. uh, you know, two to three minutes. So how do you condense that down? So you've got to spend a lot of time thinking about, well, what do we say? How could we say that? And it's a lot of fun because it's using a platform that the students really like already, and they can have fun with that. And at the same time, they're learning um, what tools historians use or how a particular event is going to be viewed with what uh, ephemera is available and, and so on. Yeah, and, and how to a part of a historian's job is, right, is to be able to articulate these things to a larger audience, right? And so that... Yeah. Asks them also to take all this information and 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 condense it and articulate it to uh, an audience in a way that exactly. that you want them to care about it. Yeah, it's not reasonable to think that we're going to ask uh, an eleventh grader or a tenth grade student to write a paper on an experiment they can they can conducted at the CERN uh, uh, lab in Switzerland because they didn't do that. They can't do that at that point in time. Um, maybe in the future they'll be able to do that. But they can't do that right at this point in time. So how do we help them understand what goes on at CERN without um, actually having them be there? And how can we approach that in a way that's going to be engaging and interesting for them? The tools they know how to use, the ones they might learn to use because they're now interested and so on. Yeah. and And I think, I mean, there's conversations around relevant and authentic instruction and the value that it has in the classroom. And I think that aligns so nicely with display literacy because uh, I'm asking students to do things that I would do, right? Like I'm asking them to engage in a way that I would engage it as someone in this field. So I think there's also this, and that makes it, I think, more engaging when you can say, all right, guys, this is this is something that's authentic and relevant and that I do in the field and that other people in this field that, that they do. And so um, we can do it too. And I think, like I mentioned before, I think if we can somehow find a way to also provide some choice, like there's choice in the field for what I want to research, I'm limited at somewhat, but I do have a good bit of choice in what, in what I want to look at and research. I think if we do the same things with students, we can have some success. 
Yeah, there's no particular reason that an eighth grader can't do uh, do something with a current event in the world, something with global warming on a, a local level. Uh, there's no reason that they can't puzzle out how to um, to map how a disease would spread after they've done an experiment, a smaller scale, a much smaller scale experiment in a, a lab or a simulation on a computer. There's no particular reason that they couldn't do that if they were engaged and interested and it's something they care about. And that, that idea of choice, I think, is really important that uh, a good teacher is able to say, well, what kinds of choices can students make or would they like to make that will also help them learn this content and this discipline and how that, that uh, knowledge is constructed. Yeah. Um, all right, good. So I think that's my first pushback, the discipline of those things. I've, I've, I feel like I've delved in this enough to like also go to push back against some things. And so I think that addresses my first pushback where sometimes the work of disciplinary literacy, sometimes the work of the professions is boring. Um, but I think that sometimes comes up when we ask students, we kind of force students to do certain things and we take away choice and we don't and we take away authenticity and we take away relevance you remove all those things yeah and yeah there, there might be some lack of engagement but that's <laughs> true no matter what um my other pushback that i when i think about this literacy if i may is okay so i have i'm a science teacher i'm teaching these students to discern evidence to you know look at the term theory in a very specific way as kind of future scientists. But I know full well that the majority of my students won't go on to be future scientists. So why should we teach in these discipline-specific ways when those students aren't going to go in to those specific disciplines? Yeah, yeah and that's a good question, I think, Matt, because um, you can't be all of these things. Most people are just not going to be an expert in science, math, social studies, you know, history, rather. Uh, they're not going to be experts in literature, but they, they do need some general knowledge about these sorts of things. And it's just it's the content, of course, uh, but it's also how these these sorts of disciplines construct their, their understanding. It does not have to be on the level of an expert and it can't be. But there are some good reasons why we should still make the attempt. Um, one of the reasons that I'm that I'm, I'm finding that we found from the article that you mentioned that we did in 2019 is that actually a lot of experts talk to other experts who have expertise in a different field. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. So a mechanical engineer might be talking to a chemical engineer, for example, and they know they have whole different uh, uh, approaches, methods of, of um, approaching their engineering tasks, uh, the problems they're trying to solve, but they have to talk together because these things, uh, well, for example, uh, imagine that you're working at SpaceX or NASA and uh, you got to test some metal to see what its tensile strength is, but you have, you're a mechanical engineer, but you know that it has chemical properties. So you've got to talk with another expert in a different field or perhaps just a chemist, not even an engineer. Um, and you've got to make your problem clear to that person. And you've got to um, understand how that person in general is going to construct his or her knowledge. And then you have to be able to understand what that person says back to you in order to solve your problem about the tensile strength of the metal that you're using. But you don't really want it to break in the middle of, of launch, for example. 
So that's an example of, of uh, one of the things that's useful about disciplinary literacies, even with some knowledge of, of, the, of, of the literacies, of how the knowledge is constructed, what its particularities are, that allows us to make communication better. Another is that um, in public facing settings, um, in public facing settings, we, we talked with an artist. Um, my colleague Barb Moss did this for us. She, she talked with an artist that was a friend of hers about these very things. Well, the artist has a whole lot of knowledge about things of hues and mixtures and um, different uh, different genre of art, um, various periods, and so on. So when she's get, uh, when she's got a, a client in front of her that's commissioning a particular piece of art, she can't just use all of these terms that she would use. We talked about the vocabulary that are very precise. Well, you can't just assume that your client knows what those are. They have expertise in something else, but it's not art. So you've got to be able to explain in such a way that somebody who's not an expert at all is, is going to be able to make sense. We talked to a musician who said the exact same thing. He, he worked uh, in sales you know, in a music store in Los Angeles, and uh, he said exactly the same thing. Listen, very often, I know a lot about music. I know a lot about how the... the, uh, the um, the sound is produced and how to change that sound when you adjust this or that. Uh, he used a lot more precise terms than I just did. But yeah. his idea was, look, people come into the store and they're not experts. They maybe want to be. They maybe be well, or maybe it's just for enjoyment. But I've got to be able to say what I know in a way that that person can understand. So experts talk to experts in other fields, but they also talk to people who are not experts at all with no foundational knowledge or very little foundational knowledge. So we have those two things that I think make it an additional um, an additional good reason why we look at and try to teach disciplinary literacies in, in a way that will, students can grasp. That knowledge does not just appear because a textbook says so. Yeah. We also have other things that we can look at too. And one of the things that I think is so important is civic engagement. And there are actually a lot of projects um, around funded by the Spencer uh, Foundation and so on and, and various universities, they're starting to look at the sorts of ways that we can use disciplinary literacies in order to in, 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 uh, engage in civic dialogue. There's a lot of things packed into the idea of civics. So it's not just politics, for example, but it's also about culture. It's also about um, why we do these sorts of things and how do we do these sorts of things and what does the scientist have to say? Um, I think that as much as I am a proponent of public education, the uh, pandemic that we're uh, just emerging from now showed that we have not done a very good job of teaching people how scientists actually do their work. Right. And so there was a lot of pushback about all kinds of things, uh, cures. Um, yeah, I just, if, 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 yeah. You, <laughs> the, the, if, if you the if you don't see the value just for literacy, I mean, just look on social media and what it's been the past three, four, five years in terms of, right. of how history and whose history is told and, and um, how that can be misleading. And you mentioned all the science and how science can be misleading. And, that, and now there's a lot of mistrust. Yeah. Um, and now there's a lot of people who are experts without, without any credentials. Um, and how, how do we kind of navigate all this stuff when anyone can be an expert mm -hmm. who has a platform and, it's not, and anyone can have a platform? And so it's become a very almost 
you know, I, I don't know. It feels like there's there's never been a more important time to be able to put on your, you know, think like a scientist hat, to think like a historian yeah. hat, and be able to decipher some of the information that's coming at you. Yeah, and, and some of these these things are, you know, they're they're really challenging actually. Um, yeah. Which monuments do we want to have up? Which ones do we really need to to say we probably don't need these anymore? Uh, these sorts of things. Um, yeah, and, and, and a lot big discussion. of issues, and I mean, as an English teacher, you saw all the time. I think all teachers see this all the time, where a lot of these these issues and topics that you talk about in school, they they don't fit neatly in one discipline. Yeah. I, I can't. Yeah. I it was it has always been a frustration to me that in all my in my fourteen years of teaching high school English, we would always kind of delve into into books that took place in specific historical eras. I think specifically of of like teaching Night uh, by Eli Wiesel. And the mm-hmm. connections to the Holocaust, and uh, we would teach other World War II books. And it seems like, well, why can't we? Like, it's impossible to teach this book without teaching history as well. Um, and then it there's, opens up the opportunity also to talk about um, science and, and math too. And um, I just read um, American Prometheus um, about kind of the invention of the atomic bomb. Um, mm-hmm. And and so all and 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 all these things are not they, you can't just stay in one lane right like they all go into other lanes so we need to be aware of what's going on in these other lanes so we can cross lanes when we need to. Yeah, if you even the more um, routine things that we do require a certain amount of, yeah. of disciplinary knowledge. If you have some sort of a medical problem, a health problem, and you want to talk to your doctor. You probably need to have enough information about that. You need to be able to read and understand valid information based on solid evidence uh, that's not just cherry picked. And that's that's a lot of, of things that I think people don't always understand that we probably need to do better in schools. You can't just pick one small bit of evidence and say this proves X right. because that's not what professionals do. That's not what experts do. They put together a whole lot of knowledge. And they gather a lot of uh, scientists, for example, would look, and we do it, the same thing in education. Yeah. We gather a whole lot of study and we say, well, this study says X, and this one says X, but this one actually says Y. How do we put this together? What does that suggest for what's next for us? Yeah, I think and, one of the, the, the biggest takeaways for me in terms of kind of being in this world of, of higher ed and reading a lot of scholarly articles and thinking about what, you know, what best practices are uh, in, in my field. It's it's brought with me a new level of humility in the right. fact that you kind of everything doesn't work in every context. We we don't know how to do these things exactly right. We're still trying to figure out. We're still trying to gather the best evidence, and some evidence kind of supports what we're saying, and some doesn't. And so, what do we do with that? And so, we need to continue to think deeper about these issues. Um, we can't read one article and say, "Okay, that's the end all, be all." Exactly yeah. what you're saying. Like uh, part p- part of doing research and figuring out best practices. Is it's kind of and teachers know this too because they've used best practices and it hasn't worked before in, in, in a certain <laughs> setting with certain yeah. classes, right? So they kind of intuitive, right. intuitively know this. Um, and so yeah, I think there is as we get into this, I think there is um mm-hmm. as we get into this lit- literacy, I think there comes kind of this humility where um I can't know everything because I read this one article and this one topic, and so now I'm an expert. No, uh we we we, we know that in all these fields it's nuanced and complex and there's not simple answers often yeah yeah we can gather evidence that we think is best for now and then later on we realize oh 
we need to amend this, we need to revise that. We saw that in microcosm of COVID. Yep. The, the solutions, we knew what the problem was, and we think we knew what the cause was, at least in, in general terms. I know they're still debating that, uh, but, um, and we knew how it spread, but people picked and sh- picked and they, they selected certain bits of things that they grabbed onto instead of saying, well, how is it that the, Center for, the Centers for Disease Control actually realized that this was going to be a pandemic? Um, I had just traveled to Rome when they st- just before they started to close down, and I was not worried because I thought, well, um, they will take care of it, but they couldn't. Yeah. And I got out one day before all of the flights from Rome were were, were canceled. There would have been worse places to be trapped, mind you. But <laughs> um, yeah. but then they were just staying in their hotels and, and so on anyway. But, yeah, you know, but, but if you, nothing you else, what this information and know what to do. Uh, how do how do you think about that? And why should you trust good scientists? Why should you trust good historians? And how do you know that they're actually good at what they do? Yeah, and it was interesting because my household, every household, um, they were having conversations around, okay, what do we now do with this information? Do we go out in public? Do we wear a mask? And it almost become kind of each individual family was kind of making decision based on, partly based on where they're getting their information from, what their family was saying. But if it taught us nothing else, I think it taught us about how there aren't simple answers to all these questions, how they're complex and how they're nuance and how people can interpret data and, and and pick the same data and interpret it a different way. And um and that's that's messy and not simple and a little bit uncomfortable, but that's also yeah, it's evolving working down you know, the field. Yeah. How do we know which solutions are working and did they work and now they don't anymore because some other variable has changed. Yeah. And this is a, a bit of skepticism. You know, it's a little bit of being a skeptic that I think is is healthy in a way to say, well, we think we know X, Y, and part of Z, what should we investigate next? How should we do that? Uh, how can I, as a citizen, make, um, how can I, as a citizen, participate so that experts can do their jobs? Um, how do I know that they've done their jobs well? And, you know, there's a lot of things on the internet. Um, there was an article in an ILA, it was an IRA publication at the time, International Reading Association at the time, called Reading Online. And I remember reading, and I can't remember who the author was. I've got a name, but I'm not sure that's who it was, so I won't say it. But she talked about uh, getting information on the internet is like getting a drink from a fire hose. I've heard that in other places, too. Yeah, There's a lot of information. Which do you pick? How do yeah. you know? And yeah. you know, there's been a lot of work. Don Lou with UConn uh, has, has done a lot with that. Uh, when he was there, and and it's it's a struggle. Well, how do we help kids know what a scientist is doing that's that's right without them taking? The, the, um, and I'm looking for some words here, but without them um, relying on what Aunt Betty said on yeah. Facebook and the meme that went with it. Um, how do we have a civic discourse about what's the best thing to do when when we're all connected? Yeah, no, it's true. And ants always ants on Facebook always get a bad rap. I feel like in these discussions, yeah, grandparent or something spread spread out the love. But I, yeah. but 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 the but the reality is true, right? Like going back to the beginning of the conversation. 
about what it means, what disciplinary literacy is, right? Asking these questions related to science or related to history. Um, those questions then become really important later in life when we're faced with these big decisions. And I mean, COVID was a very specific example, um, but there's even a lot of smaller examples that just, as you mentioned, kind of just in the daily living that involves kind of higher level, me asking higher level questions about, you know, uh, about what, what school to, to, to send my son to, mm-hmm. about um, should he play football in school? Should he, um, and just other kind of daily things, what immunizations do, do I get for my children? Like all, all these questions um, as citizens we need to make and uh, our, hopefully our schooling prepared us to, um, to, to make these decisions as best that, 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 that we can in a thoughtful way yeah. where we know what questions to ask and we're comfortable asking those, those questions. Yeah, where, where we can say to uh, the scientists, whether it's in uh, literally, most of us don't get to speak with with uh, the doctors in the in the centers for disease control. But how can we interrogate what they're saying, and how can we understand why they're arriving at the conclusions? Maybe we don't like the solution, but that's different than not understanding how they came to decide what they are what they have decided is probably in the best interests of the public health. What are we going to do? You know, do, do I uh, want to buy an electric car? And I'd probably do because I know that we can't continually use fossil fuels. It just doesn't even make sense. We know it's not renewable. Uh, nobody disputes that. But there are a lot of people pushing back that we still need to extract a lot and so on for other reasons. Well, how do we have a productive conversation? And I think that a lot of the conversations that we see now are You've heard the word the echo chamber, for example. Mm. Uh, we tend to have conversations with people who hold our views rather than with those who might have an opposing view. We don't know how to have those conversations yeah. because we don't know how to construct the uh, the knowledge that's required from history, from science, and so on. If I want yeah. to buy an electric car, okay, now I've got some new questions. Now I've got some new questions about how the batteries are constructed. And um, how did they get into my car in the first place? Were they shipped from uh, 10,000 miles away in a, in a container ship that used diesel fuel? I, I don't know, but I've got that question. So I have to think about that. And then I think to think about what, what sources can I consult and how do I know I can trust them? Because I've got enough literacy, uh, science literacy, that I can um, ask those questions. Yeah, and 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 buy, buy, buying a car is a good example because all those science questions come in, but also like math, <laughs> like how much is this car going to cost me? Is it is it uh, how much more it's going to cost me if I have a monthly payment spread across five years as opposed to if I can pay for it all up front? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think it also lends itself to, and that's what I'm talking about, like that buying a car. Okay, simple decision, but all this stuff comes up if we want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do well, all this kind of math and science that we 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 were yeah. taught in school, and the history is involved in there too. Where did they get that lithium? Yeah, and did it yeah. come from a country that's being exploited because or, or that have, oil? Yeah, um, yeah, just like the oil. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of questions that I think students would really like to explore, um, that would be authentic to them, but at the same yeah. time, 
help them interrogate by knowing how scientists, how historians work and why they work in those ways, for example. And then they'll be interested. They'll be more engaged. You know, we're right now in the, uh, the throes of uh, a kind of after pandemic absenteeism wave. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of kids are just not going to school. They got used to being at home and playing video games and they just don't go to school. Mom's at work. She didn't know. Yeah. Well, have to, how do we get them back to school? One way is to do things that are engaging and in a way that is not um, like the historian that was it the historian that you mentioned that came to school and the kids were just bored. Yes, to death. yes, yes. That's well, right, yeah, we yeah. can't do that either. That's not helpful. Well, and, I, and I, I'm no expert on absenteeism and why there's a rise in absenteeism, though that's the reality. There is a rise. I, um, I, I speculate that part of the reason, too, is now most schools have online platforms for them to submit their work and get their work. And so mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's less incentive to go to class when they can acquire mm -hmm. and submit their work online. Um, whether they're working on that work while they're at home or not is, I don't know if that's true or not, but, but that brings up, we haven't even talked about like the value of collaboration in these professions, in these pr pr professions. We talked a little bit about the need to communicate with people in our field and other fields, but, um, a part of almost any profession, right, is this really important role to collaborate with others and work with others. One of my big things, and, and maybe one day I'll win this fight, but how we have turned writing into such an individualistic activity in our secondary schools, when in the profession, we see co-authored academic papers all the time in, in the profession, or right. even in novels there's co-authored novels right there's there's co-authored projects all the time and this idea that you can kind of single-handle that you should be required every time to single and sit and write by yourself and all of a sudden talking with a peer is is cheating or lessens the value of the activity i would argue co-writing with a peer enhances it and i know there's some yes. obstacles like not like well what yeah. if one person does all the work like, I, I get all that stuff but just mm -hmm. i think the idea that we we are opposed to any kind of co-writing is just one of my little pet peeves there. We yeah. <laughs> just get that out there because collaboration yeah. is such a big part of display literacy and what we do in these professions. Oh yeah. How often do you see an article that's written by one, one expert, whether it's science, mathematics, it's almost not, never not often. it happens, yeah. but it's not often. Yeah. It's usually, you know, three, four or five people and they've collaborated and they've decided who can, you know, who can add to this, this paper, uh, this presentation, whatever it is, who can add to this, bring expertise that I don't have. Yeah. Well, not just academic writing, but any business problem. Mm -hmm. In what scenario is there a, a major problem at any at a work or a business or a profession, and it's just one person's job to solve that problem without consulting with anybody, without talking with anybody, just on their own? Like that doesn't happen. Like doesn't if there's happen. a problem at work, you bring in other people. And yeah. if, if nothing else, you at least get their advice, but often they're part of the solution as well. Yeah, yeah. And collaboration is, is just so, so important. It was part, part of that disciplinary literacy thing that I was talking about. That aspect of disciplinary literacy is that experts talk to and work with other experts who are not always, they're not always experts in the same, in the same domain. They've got to be able to work together and they've got to recognize that somebody has a strength that I don't have. I've got a strength that they don't have, and together we make a team. I remember writing a paper several years ago now um, 
but it required some heavy duty statistics. And I knew I couldn't do it. I could understand that I could probably do something. My other two authors were in the same boat. So what we did was find a statistician and brought him onto the team. And we had a really good paper. It gets a lot of citations, yeah. but we had to work together by recognizing what are the strengths and how how is that knowledge going to be constructed? We, I learned a lot about the uh, uh, particular st- statistical model just by working with uh, with uh, this other professor. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we work in teams, and yeah. we have to recognize how we each and we have to value how each of us construct knowledge, why we construct it in that way, and recognize that others do, do the same thing but in different ways along some of those lines that we were talking about. Yeah, and. I'm running out of time. We are running out of time. We're actually, I think we're out of time, but I'm going to ask one more question, one more pushback, because I I need to get it all out. Once I get this last pushback, I'll have it all out and I'll feel better. And (laughs) I'm going to ask this pushback knowing I've done two separate podcasts kind of addressing the specific issue. But my pushback is when we ask students to engage like historians and scientists and mathematicians and English scholars, that often involves reading really complex texts that are above our students' Lexile score, reading level, background knowledge that, uh, that are above their ability mm-hmm. to understand. Um, I, I did two podcasts on this. One was called Paired Wide Reading with Dr. Kath Glasswell, where she talked about giving students choice in what they read, then pairing them with a partner, and their readings would kind of be um, like easy, medium, and challenging. And, kind of, and they could choose where they felt whatever level that they and their partner were at, whether it's medium, complex or kind of simple and read that article. I also had another interview with um, Dr. Choi and Todero who talked about their four-tiered text approach and their whole idea was scaffolding. You start with an easier task text that lays out all that back, background information and then you get a little bit of a harder text and then can you get, a? I think their thing was a, an argument to the, whatever the main idea was um, and then you get a really that all builds up to the last text, which is a really complex text. Um, so those were a couple of strategies that we've talked about here before. But but how how would you respond to this argument that if they're reading like these professions, they're not going to be able to comprehend the texts? Yeah, that that's a, a really interesting and complex problem because those texts that are for experts aren't going to be accessible. I mean, they right. might be able to download them, but they wouldn't be able to understand them because they right. don't know how they don't have the experience to know how those those texts were written. Uh, I find this is interesting when I teach research methods classes that a lot of times the uh, the students who are novices in research think that the literature review is all about um, finding out if they actually did their homework, basically. Mm -hmm. And no, that's not what it is, because this is how we construct knowledge in academia. We, and in almost any field, though we use different evidence, uh, evidence bases, we use uh, different uh, um, different types of text, but we gather a lot of information and we weigh that information against each other and we synthesize that information. We have to read a lot. Well, think about uh, um, how much you would have to read to be um, even a novice with a good solid knowledge in a history class of primary source documents. You couldn't do it. There just isn't enough time to do that. Um, so instead, we use textbooks. We're never going to stop using textbooks or textbook-like texts 
for for history instruction. You just couldn't go, in, in spite of the fact there's a lot of things online, they're digitized now. You just can't use all of that that uh, primary source documentation in order to construct the knowledge and understanding that you need. You can't even um, read the the, uh, the reports or sorry the uh, um, the studies that have been done yeah. or written about commentaries in sufficient quantity to be knowledgeable. So you have to rely on those textbooks to a certain degree. And I'm thinking of history because I taught history, and so I have some knowledge about that. And some of those history texts were really not too bad. Others were not too good. Right. But, yeah, that's a separate uh, discussion. Yeah, yeah. It's a separate discussion. <laughs> but the point is that kids are going to be reading those sorts of things. So yeah. how we have to what we have to do with that is help them understand in the history example. All of this is constructed in this way. This historian who wrote this text, or this group of historians who wrote this text, have some information and they have gathered that. By reading other historians, they have gathered that by looking at primary and secondary sources, and they have put that here in this text in a manner that can make it possible for you to understand, in general, what happened at the Battle of Gettysburg, and and, and how that became such a pivotal thing. How could you possibly ask a student to read everything that would go into an understanding of why that was such a disaster for General Lee? Yeah. They're going to read the textbook. So we have to help them understand why what's in that textbook is based on what historians have done. And we have to show them some of those primary sources. We have to show them some of those secondary sources. We have to help them read some of them, but they're going to get their basic information from a textbook. Yeah. And even, even the reading of the textbook might be challenging for some of our students. And that's where it goes back to that discussion we had before about, okay, if you're a history teacher, part of teaching history means <clears throat> teaching the vocabulary that's specific in your discipline um, and, and teaching them um, whatever the vocabulary strategies are, but teaching them specifically so they'll be better prepared to mm -hmm. read that text. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and whether the text is the professor talking or the teacher talking, right. um, or whether it's reading a text, or whether it's gathering information. Or a YouTube video. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they're going to be reading these things that are not going to be the things that an expert would be using. They need to know what those are, and they need to maybe be exposed to those on a level that's appropriate with text that they can read, that they can make some sense of. They can be a little challenging, but not over their heads. Yeah. So that, that's what we need to be able to do is say, how do these things that, <clears throat> that we take in a textbook, for example, but it's anything that's, that's consumable that an expert has done that's uh, maybe public-facing or for other experts, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I didn't really think about it before, but that's really a strong argument for, because I know there's been a lot of uh, talk away from textbooks, right? And certainly I think there's a place to supplement textbook materials. Um, but I think you just laid out a pretty good argument for why textbooks are valuable because, yeah, we, we can't, especially, I, I find history particularly to be a daunting subject, U.S. history, world <laughs> history, where, yeah. where, where does one even begin? Uh, and so those yeah. textbooks become valuable because, you have to cover a lot of information in a short amount of time in a way that's accessible um, for students. You know? Yeah. And, and then we can help students wonder, okay, so I just read this about Alexander the Great, but he lived X many years ago. And actually, I can't tell you what it is off the top of my head, but let's say it's 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, how do we know that? Because there, weren't a, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, internet in those days to record everything that anybody ever did in every second of their lives. Uh, there wasn't... A, Paper was just not a thing there. Um, so how do we know? 
What did, what did the historians gather that made them believe that this is what Alexander did, Alexander the Great did in, in um, building his empire? Well, how do we know that? Yeah. So we can help students to wonder, all right, we just read this about him. But how do we know? Yeah, I think it's always interesting history to look at. Uh, letters were written, for example, and um, but we never, like we, for some reason, when we look at something through a historical lens, we just assume everyone's honest and telling us 100% the truth about this historical kind of time and right. moment. Where today, when someone says something, everything we know, oh, everyone's biased. Oh, they're coming at it from that political lens. Yeah. And, and we get it now. But then sometimes when we step back and look at history and primary sources, we think, oh, everyone is just honest and telling us the facts. And I can just believe everything everyone says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just and everybody knows what the founding fathers in the United States originally meant. Everybody knows. Yeah. None of them exactly. know exactly the same thing. But they all attribute the founders it meant for us to, for this to happen. They didn't mean for that to happen. Exactly I always right. find that a bit of a chuckle just because, well, have you read the Federalist Papers? All of them. <laughs> all right. Well, as we wrap up here, all right, we I think we've adequately pushed back on my misgivings. I appreciate that. It's been a good practice for for me. Um, as we kind of wrap this up, are, are there any, um, I guess, final takeaways here or final words of advice for educators, um, whether they're already been doing this for a while, just by literacy, or if they're just kind of starting out, um, what are some kind of final words of advice we can leave listeners with? Well, um, I think that one of the things that we can, we can do is, as teachers and as professors of literacy, um, one of the things that we can do is think about how others construct knowledge. We mentioned that a lot of uh, the early strategies, the instructional routines we used were taken from the National Writing Project and various um, reading approaches that were used primarily with fictional texts. And we just adapted them. Well, there's nothing wrong with adapting, but it doesn't mean that they're all completely appropriate. So one of the things that I think we can say is, how can you take the strategies that you know? How can you take KWL? How can you take the rap uh, uh, from from uh, Carol Santa years ago? And most teachers know what a raft writing prompt looks like, but do they know how they can adapt that to help students understand what a scientist might actually write in a way that a tenth grader would write it if he were looking to become a scientist and understand how a scientist? Uh, how can we take what we know? and highlight not just the content, not just what we want to learn, but also how that uh, that knowledge could be constructed or why that knowledge was constructed that way. Can we tweak those, those strategies? Can we tweak, tweak KWL such that it helps students understand the complexities of a word problem in mathematics and take that apart in such a way that they can be successful with a word problem, dreaded word problem. Um, yeah. KWL could look differently in my English class than it does in the math class. What you're doing with that KWL chart, yeah, yeah. What could you tweak about that? What could you rejigger that would make that a really useful implement for your mathematics lesson and for the for the text that includes the mathematical symbols that that students need to read? How can they use language to better understand mathematics using a KWL adaptation? So I think that may be one of the things that I think we can start with. We can ask teachers to say, what things do you know that have been reasonably successful, but if you looked at it through a disciplinary lens, how would a science teacher, you're an expert scientist who is a teacher, 
adapt this strategy so that it highlights the scientific method? How can we adapt that strategy so that it, it highlights the evidence that might be drawn upon in uh, a history writing assignment, for example? Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think of, you made me think of the Frere model for vocabulary. In the center, you have the word, but out, in those outside boxes, you can kind of put whatever you want, right? If it's a math class, you can put examples of mm -hmm. math problems. You can put other things. So kind of adapting a Frere model, which um, we, we know can be a, a potentially good vocabulary strategy, but it could look different in each. We could have a quote in English. We could have math problems in math. It could look differently yeah. depending on. Yeah, you could, you could uh, take that and look at the operators, the, the words that are operators in a, in a word problem and pick those out. What do they mean? What they want you to do when it says this and this, but not that. What do they want you to do? You, you need to add, you need to subtract, and that's a very simple, but let's pick those out. Let's look at them and let's see what they're asking us to do in a mathematics yeah. class. Yeah, let's look at through the, through the lens of a mathematician. and Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, Dr. Thomas Devere Wolseley, I, I, I appreciate all the time. I think this has been kind of a really a fun, engaging, and kind of fascinating conversation for me. You, you give me the opportunity to kind of air out all my misgivings about this part literacy. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like, good misgivings. They're the sorts of questions that we need to be asking ourselves. So yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, good. Well, thank thank you. I appreciate. It. And uh, just as a heads up for listeners on the show notes. Again, you can find um, the article we were discussing here that we discussed pre pre previously, Intersections of Literacy and Teaching with, this, uh, with, with the Discipline and Professions. We asked some experts. That's going to be free to read in the show notes. Uh, so check that out if, you're, if, you, if you enjoyed this conversation. 